Lecture discussion number 247. Note that I did not give the, the date. I just gave lecture discussion number 247. It's somehow Terry's fault that I'm unable to give the date. We'll, we'll let you know after the civil and the legal procedures that have to be done by the Cliffside Legal Defense Authority. And we will try to get to the bottom of why it is we cannot give the date. <sighs> My titling has demonstrated a margin of error, as the vast Internet audience has noticed and has pounced. I got seven letters, I think yesterday, from the Internet audience. And that's uh, wonderful, and, uh, but, uh, and it had nothing to do with this, but I expect that, uh, that I'll hear about all of this. But anyway, I've decided to take measures today to reduce expectations. <laughs> and, and everyone will ask, how can they get lower? They'll ask in unison, well, for starters, we could go to ultra-high definition. Are we in ultra-high definition already? No, no, we could go ultra-high definition. That would scare the children, the horses. Uh, we'd have stamp-eating cattle, livestock, and all that. So the ceiling is low around here. I need to get it lower. I could get it. If I could cave it in, I probably would. That's both literally and allegorically a possibility in our building. Things could always get worse. So please bear with us as we try to figure out these dynamics with regard to producing something for tube face, which is never easy for us. Things will always get worse before they get worse. He who dies with the most stuff is dead. Never pass a good chance to shut up. None of those fit in context. I just like them all. So I wanted to give them to you. Anyway, previously I introduced Leviticus 17. That's where we are to Matthew 9, 18 through 26, Luke 8, 41 through 56, Mark 55, 25 through 34, Deuteronomy 21, uh, the tail end of it, the last paragraph, starting in Deuteronomy 18 through 22, 5 of Deuteronomy, actually all of Deuteronomy 22. And Numbers 15, 32 through 41. Now, coming to this is Leviticus 17. Mostly because of blood. We'll get to that in a minute. So we're getting into the examination of the bleeding woman, and now we're bringing in the Leviticus 17 blood. And I've done this for a couple of reasons, besides that I think it's absolutely appropriate in light of John 11:25. John 11.25 is significant to this discussion because that is where Christ establishes something. It's where his incredible question is, do you believe this? And the this is, I am, he says, the resurrection and the life. Christ is the only life and the only resurrection. And Leviticus 17 is going to establish here in just a second that life is in the blood. So that's how the equation starts to get put together. Leviticus, so, you know, just put a plus sign between all of this. And now you have the equation. So, let's uh, read Leviticus 17. Uh, start at 8 and work our way from there. See where we go. 17.8.
God says, Also you shall say to them, Whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice, and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from among his people. So start imagining. What have I got here? I've got a man. He didn't bring a sacrifice. Start making, forming the questions. And whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwells among you, so obviously I have strangers dwelling among the house of Israel, don't I? And God is including them. Why does God include the strangers with the house of Israel in the context of not bringing a sacrifice? And ask that question. And whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwells among you who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the souls." Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, no one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. And I reference that this is almost like the warning signs on some products that we get now to avoid legal issues, right? Where they say, please do not put Vaseline on your cornflakes. I mean, things like that that are ridiculous, and you'd think no one would ever do it, but yet they're doing it, and that's why those warnings are on those products, is in order to uh, um, put some kind of protection from civil lawsuits. Don't pour the hot coffee on your lap. Caution, coffee is hot. Well, that this reminds me of that when I lead, read it. No one among you shall eat blood, nor any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. Well, what's the question? Who's eating blood? Why does he have to say this? Why does he have to say this? Answer that. Because somebody's doing it. Whatever man of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. <coughs> Whenever you see dust, back to Genesis 3 you go, right? For it is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, you shall not Eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of the flesh is in its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And every person who eats what died naturally, or what was torn by beast, whether he is a native of your own country or a stranger, he shall both wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his body, then he shall bear his guilt. So I hope you see, I have a bleeding woman, and now I have all of these ordinances, if you will, all of these declarations about what to do with blood. First and foremost, don't eat the blood. Bleeding woman, blood. And what does he say? The life is in the blood. Christ says, I am the life, I am 
the resurrection, the only life and the only resurrection. So then Christ ultimately is saying that he is the only life blood. If you wish, he's the only blood. His blood is the sustaining life blood. The woman who bled for 12 years, incurable, bleeding to death, reaches out for the blue fringe, the blue tassel of God, God's talent blue tassel. Numbers 15, 32 through 41, Deuteronomy 22, 12. She reaches for it, and her bleeding to death instantly stops. That makes perfect sense, because Christ is the life, the only one, the only resurrection. The life is in the blood. He is the life blood. She stops bleeding when she grabs the blue tassel of the life blood. And then after that or subsequent to that, Jesus resurrects the 12-year-old daughter. Again, emphasizing the blue tassel. He he wraps her in the tallet and the blue tassels are around her and he calls her up from death. So he has to reunite the corrupted dead body with the soul. Think about the, the physics of that, if you will, the biology of that. What does he have to do to get that body and soul back in life? Tells her to eat. We have to get on to that too. Why does he want her to eat? Eat what? So I have the blue tassel. I have blood. I have life. I have my equation right there, right? The life and the resurrection. John 11:25. Christ, the life. He stops the bleeding. The life blood from coming out and he resurrects. And so we have that great uh, relationship to I am the resurrection. I am the life. Do you believe this? Yes or no? So that's the anatomy of where we were or were or where we are today and those who, actually for those who insist I reveal my lesson plan. That's how I'm doing it. I can't, I can't do that enough. I have to prove that my organizational skills exist. The people are insatiable. They keep asking me. What is your lesson plan? Can you give me your lesson plan? Well, I'm doing it for you. Hi. There it is. I pretend that these people can be appeased. I know better. I know they can't. I'm just getting soft in my old age and my dotage, I guess. Okay. Along the way, we had to confront what I now are calling the easiest of the easy questions. For example, I asked this a while back. Did God have the correct coloring, the correct blue dye on his tallet fringes, the blue thread fringe or the blue thread tassel. More medicine. I got a letter saying that uh, my my product placement skills were diminishing, so I'm trying to... I was going to bring liter bottles, and I was also... uh, I had something else. I found Cheez-Its. Was that you... Ken that brought me the cheeses with the jack cheese. What's, what's it called? What, the, what is the cheese? Cheddar Jack? Is there, boy, those were good. Now that I can't taste anything, man, I could taste those. So I was thinking about making an entire table of products that I'm endorsing for the benefit of. Never mind, I know. So I asked, did God... This is an easy question. Jesus Christ has a talent. He has 
the blue thread on his tassels, in the, in the fringe, whichever words you wish, did he have the correct coloring? Did he have the actual blue dye? Does God have the blue dye, the right blue dye on his blue tassels? And I say, of course, duh. But not everybody agrees with that. I think it is the obvious duh of all does. But admittedly, many say no. He doesn't have the right dye on his tassels. And that stuns me that God would make a mistake like that, being that he's God. You would think he would know. Just that analogy is blasphemous, isn't it? Of course he knows. He's omniscient. Remember, the Romans controlled the blue dye at this time with their usual brutality. They decreed that this blue coloring could only uh, be in the, uh, that had to go to the Roman royalty, specifically Caesar. It was a capital offense to have this blue dye. And the Jewish, um, the people that had the ability to manufacture it were in hiding. And so it's extremely valuable. It's very rare. And the Romans collected all of it and had every aspect of it. And so uh, yeah. for Christ to, to display it would have been noticed. The question again, did God have his own supply of blue dye? Again, see the word duh. Again, again. There remains a large group of folks out there. They shadow, uh, shout a, a chorus. They say, no, he didn't. I find that annoying. But what can I say about it other than you need to be aware? Recognize that I instinctively, I would like to say obediently, approach these easiest of the easy questions from the unchangeable, immutable position that Christ is always God. If you start out with Christ is always God, it's easy to answer, does he have the right blue dye? Do you see the implication? If you say that Christ does not have the correct blue dye, that is a symbol of him, that he has just... No blue dye. There is a period. By the way, you should know. You should know that the Jews of the day, the observant Jews, because there is no guarantee that the dye is the correct color, they do not have blue dye on their tassels today. What are you implying if you say that Christ did not have blue thread on his tassels or that he did not have the correct color? What are you implying? You work that out, I'll keep going. I'm saying that if you obediently approach these easy questions from the position that Christ is always God, that Jesus Christ is never not God, then that's what makes these easy questions. They shouldn't be hard questions ever. They should be really easy. Just start with God is God. Christ is God. Therefore, Christ would have the right color. The color is important to him, isn't it? He's the one that established it in Numbers and in Deuteronomy 22. Anyway, you might also remember the brief discussion that we had previously on the YHVH. The unpronounceable now, the unknown, the, uh, the unspeakable name of God. And that discussion and carries and invites a very easy question too, doesn't it? You might remember the YHVH, uh, the Ark of the Testimony. And the blue dye, 
and I could give you the actual Hebrew term, and I might do that in the future, but just that just confuses people somewhat, and I just want to stay with blue dye for now. Those are the three things I mentioned that I think are greatly significant that Israel has lost. The Jews have lost things, and these are the three that I believe are the most prominent. And if you were here for Lecture 246, I, I provided notice I didn't give the date. That's Terry's fault, in case anyone was wondering. But if you were here for Lecture 246, I provided a cursory examination of these three things. Cursory might be a strong adjective. I hardly examined the subject of these three at all other than to state that they are lost to Israel. But it's very important that you know that Israel doesn't have those three things. The sacred name, the name of God, the ineffable, the unutterable name of God, His name, the tetragrammaton, the four letters. They don't have it. They don't have the Ark of the Covenant, which is so many things. The cherubim that is above or on, on the uh, mercy seat, the the value it has to Israel in war. And in the pregame, folks, um, uh, we talked about this alliance, those of you on the Internet, between Turkey and Russia and Iran, which is extraordinarily significant, and the value that the ark might have. We'll discuss that again here in a minute. But the hovering of the light of life is above it in the Holy of Holies. Christ, the light of life, if you wish to say that, and it would be absolutely appropriate to do, or the Shekinah glory hovers above the Ark of the Covenant, above the mercy seat between the cherubim that are on each side. The Ten Commandment stone tablets are contained inside to list just some of what the Ark of the Testimony represents. So that's missing, and the blue dye is on this list as well. Also missing, the tassel, the blue tassel that you grab when you're bleeding to death is missing. The blue tassel that reminds you of that man gathering wood and what the implications are. That's missing. So they have lost that. So we should journey into these at least. And some would want me to include the lampstand. That's the... Uh, the lampstand is an extraordinary thing. It's not a candlestick. It's a lampstand in the sense that it's oil. That oil has very, very significant uh, meaning to it. You can make a case that the lampstand should be on this as well. The, the evidence is, is that the Romans brought it back after they slaughtered everybody in Jerusalem. Some would want me to put the mantle of Elijah on there too, but that is lost. Or Elisha, since Elijah handed it or threw it to Elisha. Evidence is, is who had it next? John the Baptist. How did he get it? This is called the discussion of the mantle of Elijah, and, and that may, may be part of the discussion as well. The ashes of the red heifer, the stone tablets of Moses, the handwritten uh, five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the rod of Aaron, the rod of Aaron, the manna, those are in the ark of the testimony. What, imagine what the world would say if that ark is found by Israel. Let's say tonight Israel finds it. Tomorrow you wake up and we learn that they have the handwritten Pentateuch of Moses. They have the stone tablets. They have the rod of Aaron. They have the ark of the covenant and the mercy seat. They have uh, the manna. 
What has happened to the world if that occurs today? What would the world say if Israel finds and reveals the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant? Which is why I ask the question a lot. Does the Ark, is the Ark prominent in the destruction of the Ezekiel 38 invading confederacy? Do they lift the lid when that war breaks out? Remember, the Bible is specific. Israel knows that God defeats this confederacy. The first thing the Israeli military will do if they find the ark is is determine whether or not it still works. Because it's a weapon as well as a symbol of Christ. It's intrinsically a symbol of Christ. It is a portrait of Christ, uh, the most amazing symbol, portrait of Christ you can find in Scripture in all likelihood. It would be hard to find one more so. And yet it is also to the Jews a weapon of incredible power. Imagine an invading army of maybe a million troops from all different countries, military systems, aircraft, land, armor, naval systems coming at Israel and they open the lid. I don't know if they have to open the lid. I don't know how it works. This may stun you. I've never seen it work. No one has, obviously. We've only seen movies. That's why I say open the lid. I don't know if that's that's the, the way it works or not. Or is it the Shekinah glory between those cherubim? It goes out. That is the light of life. Just a thought. That's free. No charge. Okay. For today, just go along with the question as to whether Jesus Christ had a talent with the correct blue dye thread friends. What have we decided? We have decided, duh. That's an easy question. He's got it. Now go to the next question. Did Jesus Christ, while he is walking, we're going to have to go through all of the scriptures. But while he is in Israel, does he, because they had lost it by this time, does he pronounce his own name? Does he utter it aloud? Connect it to the blue dye question. Did Jesus Christ say his own name aloud? Do I have somebody with the right color blue dye saying the actual name of himself or the sacred name, the four-letter name? Put it another way, connected to the blue dye question. Does God know his own name? Did Christ know how to pronounce his own name? Of course he did, didn't he? He does. Da, da, da. Would God say it aloud to his nation of Israel? Did he say it aloud? Well, let's go backwards. Would he say it aloud? They didn't know it. Would he tell them? Would Israel know it was God himself and or recognize that Jesus Christ said God's name? Would he pronounce it correctly? There you go. Would, would Israel know? 
And obviously, we're going to need to delve into this and locate every New Testament scripture where Christ says the ineffable name. How many do you think there are? There's your homework assignment. Compare them, by the way, to their Old Testament complement. Christ is going to say his name. No one would know his name. He's going to say it, isn't he? Bring a lunch. That's going to be a long day. But not today. Today is not the day that we're going to do this. Today is something far more contemporary than an exhaustive analysis of the Tetragrammaton, or the four letters, if you will. Today is Leviticus 17 day. We, we should write we every time we say Leviticus 17. We, why do we have to put it on the board? Because nobody says we about Leviticus 17, which is kind of a shame, but that's the way it is. I always used to say everybody loves them some Leviticus 17, because I knew it wasn't true. I always used to say all over the United States, pastors today are reading Leviticus 17 to their massive overflowing congregations. Crowds come to see the Leviticus 17 discussions, just like here. Notice we don't show the audience. Yes, (laughs) the audience is laughing about that. Okay, enough of that. Earlier we read Leviticus 17, 8 through 15. The life of the flesh is in the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. The life blood. God says, I will set my face against that person who eats life blood. And I'll cut him off. No one shall eat the life blood. That's God's command. No one. No stranger, no Israelite, no one eats the life blood. No one means no one. Clearly God is in absolute, total opposition to the eating of blood, which we're going to have to define. What does it mean, eating of blood? We need an accurate definition. You might think drinking blood doesn't say drinking blood. He says eating blood. What's he mean? Don't do it. So we have this great truth now that leaps out that's contained in Leviticus 17, a truth that explains many, many mysteries and how we're going to uncover it. Same way we do always. Pinky. We're going to ask hundreds of questions now. First question. Always is why. Why is always the best question. Why does God prohibit the eating of blood? Who? Exactly who? Name the person. What's the name? That's the way I like to think of it. It doesn't always work for everybody. But I always assign a specific person to this. Who is doing this? What's his name? This guy that is eating this blood. Why is this guy, this person, eating this blood? Is it somebody's blood? Whose blood is it? And obviously, communion comes immediately into the arena, right? We're going to have to reconcile communion. Is what did Christ say? 
drink this, this is my blood. Eat this, this is my flesh. We're going to have to reconcile that with Leviticus 17. That's for another day. As we're going to have to do with the bleeding woman in the blue tassel. Who else, where else in Scripture does this eating of a blood, uh, eating of blood occur? So who is this guy? Why is he doing it? Probably it will be prudent to look those up. So we'll have quite the task before us, as I said earlier. We've got a big mess here in the sense that it's going to take us a while to get through it. And I won't do it justice. Those of you on the Internet that say, I never do it justice, I concede. You're correct. I never do it justice. I, as my usual custom, I have purposely avoided some key pieces of information. I've done that in order to spread confusion among the congregation. It's what I do. It's my system. I've done it here, and I do it to the vast digitized audience. I want to see whether or not, by withholding some key pieces of information, if you will leap off into the rocks and the broken glass. Cliffside. That's probably the very first very valuable piece of information that I left off was Leviticus 17.4. Notice that I started at Leviticus 17. What? Where did I start? Yeah. We should go here. And then we're going to go to Romans 5.13. That's going to be very important. Let's go to Leviticus 17.4. Here it is. We'll start at 3. Whatever man of the house of Israel who kills an ox or lamb or goat in the camp or who kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, the guilt of bloodshed shall be imputed to that man. Okay, that's a legal term. Imputed. And by the way, put to death. He's cut off, put to death, same thing. If a guy kills an ox or a lamb or a goat, does not bring it to the tabernacle, the guilt of the bloodshed shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be summarily executed. Again, why? God is serious. If you kill a goat... Outside the camp, you don't bring it to the temple, or in this case, the tabernacle, the tent of Moses, and offer it in front of the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the light of life, or Shekinah glory. That is a capital offense immediately, and that person is put to death. And who is this guy? What's he thinking? He's what I like to call the blood eater. Where can I put that? We'll go over here. Uh, i got to make a list. I'll make a list for you over here. I have the man gathering wood, right? Or the gatherer. I have the rebel, the rebellious son. And now I have the blood eater. Each one of them 
are put to death. That's not a coincidence that I lumped them all three together. I think they belong together. So who is this guy? Hopefully he reminds you of the man gathering wood and the rebellious son because it's good that you're reminded. You should be reminded. Now, Romans 5.13. This is a Roman study after all, right? Some of you have raised the concern that I haven't ever actually left Romans 5. Uh, And that is not true. I have left Romans 5. Not very far, though. So, you're almost correct. But let's now go to Romans 5, 12 through 13. And read that again. We will find information. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law, law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there was no law. There's that word, imputed again. Very important uh, word. Let me finish. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So that's the great verse of the continuity of germ cell plasm in Deuteronomy 22.5. Now, again, I'm not going to go germ cell and somatic cells. Just look at that term imputed. There's a reason that it is in both places. Imputed or imputation to credit a person, to lay responsibility, to assign blame, to place blame. That's what it means. It's a legal context. And Adam has brought up also. So I have two places where now I have to pay attention because I have this judicial uh, reference which would be expected of any scripture containing elements of Adam and or Eve. The the central point of Genesis, in my view, Genesis 3, uh, certainly one of the defining events of Genesis, uh, again, in my opinion, is the trial of Adam or the trial of Eve, both of them. That's a judicial event itself, just as it is here in Leviticus 17. I've got a blood eater. He's put on trial and he's executed. I have a man gathering wood. He's put on trial. He's executed. I have a rebellious son. He's put on trial. He's executed. I have this judicial element here. Imputed blame is assigned. Responsibility is assigned. Credit is assigned. The bloodshed uh, that this man committed, this eating of the blood, that is, that is assigned to him and he is executed for it. The trial of Adam is about sin and death and the solution to sin and death. And we see now at Leviticus 17.4, this guilt of bloodshed shall be imputed, shall be the responsibility of that man who did not bring an ox or lamb or goat that he has killed to the tent of Moses. So let's keep asking, what is this? It's something very serious. What does it mean? This man that kills an ox and doesn't bring it to the tabernacle, he's executed, put to death. Can't say it enough. Why didn't the man bring the animal that he killed to the tabernacle? How many of these happened before God said, stop it? 
Did he let it go on for a while? Or did he say it before it happened? How often is this happening? Who is this guy? Back up a step further. Why did the man kill the ox or the lamb or the goat? Did you think this was a hunter trying to get food for his family? He's going to think I want lamb tonight. Maybe I'll have a little ox stew. I'm going to go kill me a lamb or an ox. And God says, oh, wait a minute, you should have brought it to me, so I'm going to execute you for that. Is that how you got it worked out? Because that would be horribly wrong. This is an evil man doing something evil. And God has to execute him to save his nation of Israel. Why didn't the man bring the animal that he killed to the tabernacle? Where did he bring it? He didn't go to the tabernacle, so where did he go? The answer to this is something that I avoided doing. What did I avoid doing? I avoided Leviticus 16. Because what is Leviticus 16? It would be logical, wouldn't it, that Leviticus 17 had something to do with Leviticus 16 and something to do with Leviticus 18. But that's what I want you to get in the habit of doing. You have a whole bunch of questions on Leviticus 17. Where's the first place you look? Leviticus 16, Leviticus 18. That's probably going to help you out. What's going on in Leviticus 16? What is this all about? Here is the answer. The day of atonement. Well, of course, the day of atonement, because the blood is for the atonement of your souls, right? Leviticus 17, this is about the day of atonement. That's what Leviticus 16 is all about. And by the way, uh, the day of atonement is all about Christ. It symbolizes Christ. Leviticus 17 builds on the Day of Atonement. So what, what that means is I've got a guy killing goats on the Day of Atonement. That's what he's doing. This is a Day of Atonement event. So on the Day of Atonement, I've got a guy killing the goat, and he's not bringing the goat to the priest. What's he doing with it? Why is he doing it? So I've got a guy killing goats on the Day of Atonement who is not Aaron, who is not the high priest. Who is he? Who does he think he is? Why is he doing it? Who's watching him? How big a crowd he got? Do you think this is one guy in the woods by himself killing a goat? No. It's just a coincidence that he's killing his goat someplace different than Aaron is killing the other goat. There's two goats on Yom Kippur, by the way. One gets killed, one does not get killed. Aaron's got a goat to kill. i got another guy with a goat to kill. How close are they? Are they doing it at the exact same time? What does Aaron do with the blood of his goat? What does the other guy do with the blood of the other goat? He eats it. God says, kill him. Because it's evil. This guy refuses to bring his goat to the Holy of Holies where the Shekinah glory, where the light of life is, above the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Why would this man do this? What is his plan? And God explains it. Explains what the guy's plan is. So let's go read it. 
that you have to know that this is happening. Oh, you don't have to know. People get mad at me. They say, we don't have to know. Why do you say we have to know? You're right. You don't have to know. I'll take that back. You do have to know. We'll get into that later. Okay? It says this. He has shed blood, and that man shall be executed from among his people to the end uh, that the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices which they offer in the open field, and that they may bring them to the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting to the priest and offer them as peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar. So in other words, don't eat the blood. Sprinkle the blood on the altar at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. One guy's eating blood. What do you think he's wearing? What do you think he thinks he is? Who, if you ask that man, what are you? What does he say? The blood eater. What does he say? I'm a, I am a, Vacuum cleaner salesman. He does not say that. What does he say he is? He's a priest. That's exactly what he says he is. And he says he's a high priest and he is equal to an authority to Aaron and this is the day of atonement. And he's eating his blood of his sacrifice and Aaron is sprinkling his. What do you think the priest of the goat does other than that? Start imagining what his system is, what he's got, what his devices are. What's his motive? What's his plan? Obviously, his plan is to stop Israel from bringing their sacrifices to Aaron. No more offer their sacrifices to this guy. Instead, they take them to Aaron. Let me finish verse 7. They shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the harlot. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. Does that sound familiar? That's almost word for word. Numbers 15, 32 through 41, where they're also inclined to go after the harlot and he establishes the blue tassels to remind them that their inclination is to go after the harlot. So I have a guy who's intending to take Israel and lure them over to him. He's a religious man. He's a religious priest in the sense that he's a pagan, but uh, he is still nonetheless religious, and he is trying to divert Israel from the true God over to what he is doing, and he is sacrificing. And by the way, uh, that's three times. That means I I owe the congregation 30 cents now. Those of you who wondered what the penalty was. It's 10 cents, by the way. Thank you for laughing. It's worth the 50 cents to get one person to laugh at my joke that I've worked so hard at. And I'm persevering with it, aren't I? That's what makes it more funny is I won't give up. just chewing on it, hoping that eventually three people will laugh, then I can quit. (laughs) I got a guy, he's killing a goat. It says, sacrifice to demons. This is literally the goat demon here. 
this is a satanic symbol. And Israel will chase after him whom they have played the harlot. Israel is inclined to harlotry. Numbers 15.39 The blue tassels are to remind them that God's commandments are opposed to the paganism that they are drawn so powerfully towards. On the Day of Atonement, I have a guy with a goat head and I have Aaron. And the guy with the goat head, how big is his crowd? Aaron is sprinkling, talking about... uh, he doesn't maybe understand the portrait that is Christ, but I have essentially the portrait of Christ over here, and over here I've got a pagan goat head and a guy eating blood. Who has the biggest crowd? What do you think? I have a man gathering wood, Numbers 15. How big a crowd does he have? I have a rebellious son. How many are following the rebel? How pervasive is this paganism in Israel. Why are they so drawn, let me put it this way, why are we so drawn to this garbage? Well, we are. Whose crowd is bigger? Don't ever raise your hand here, but let's do it this way. How many people are with Aaron? How many people are with the goat killing blood eater? Who has the biggest crowd? All in favor of the blood eater? Yeah, he's he's winning. Yes, sir. This is the golden calf. This is all of this stuff. This is the counterfeit is winning. We can look around us. The counterfeit wins. Why are we, why is humanity so drawn to this? Why do we want the blood eater instead of the one who sheds the blood for us? Hopefully for you folks that have been have been coming during the man gathering wood on the Sabbath and the, um, the man who despises God, hates the Word of God, who is Jesus Christ, ask why. Why would somebody hate Jesus Christ, the Word of God made flesh, the only life that there is? This is the only place to get life. He's the light of life. I can't say that enough. Anyway, the man gathering wood gathers wood because he hates the Word made flesh. He hates the solution to sin and death. The goat killer, the blood eater, the rebellious son, they're all doing the same thing. The man in Leviticus 17, 3 through 4, kills and sacrifices animals to demons, which is harlotry. That's how harlotry is defined. This man eats the blood of his sacrifices, which is the absolute opposite of what God intends. He intends for the blood to be atonement for the soul. God makes atonement for the soul, Leviticus 17, 10 through 12. And the other guy's eating it. He's not using it to atone souls. He's trying to eat it. He does eat it. And God says, stop it. Obviously, eating the blood is the opposite of sprinkling the blood for atonement for the souls, isn't it? Why does the guy eat it? I have a pagan demon worship sacrifice that's being held, performed simultaneously to Aaron, implementing, completing the God-given, God-commanded Day of Atonement sequence. So over here, I have this incredible picture of Christ sacrificing, substituting for us. Over here, I got another priest. I got two priests. One's doing Christology, if you will, has the typology, the symbolism of salvation and lifeblood. And over here, I've got a guy killing goats 
making a goat head and drinking or eating the blood. And who's got the bigger crowd? I think it's no question that God says you are inclined towards the goat killer blood eater. You're inclined towards the man gathering wood. You're inclined towards the rebellious son. I'm almost out of time, Dave, so I've got to fly. So Leviticus 17 is this prohibition of eating of blood. It's to be seen, placed alongside with the Day of Atonement. Know that the Day of Atonement is happening. I have two priests, one of God, one of Satan. Satan's depicted there, right? Two ceremonies. One is received by God as attainment for soul. The other is a whore, harlot, prostitution, perversion. Which one does Israel get drawn to? Which one does humanity go for? Humanity is inclined to the whore. Why? Why does humanity go to death? God commands that blue tassels as a means to explain why this is the case. Israel is drawn to the whore, to the perversion, to Satan. Now, it is not much of a leap to assign destination to this dichotomy, right? What I mean by that is there is two mutually exclusive courses. They lead to utter, unmitigated destinies. Yes, I know utter, unmitigated is a redundancy. Did it for professional effect. What we have here is not a failure to communicate. You have to be old to know that's a joke. Everybody on both sides knows exactly what they're doing. There's no mistaking. Everybody knows I have a simultaneous Day of Atonement choice. I can go towards the Christ choice, the God, the life, blood choice, or I can go towards the whore. Israel naturally, instinctively, willingly rushes to the man killing the goat and eating the blood. If he eats the blood, what happens to the blood? The blood doesn't get sprinkled. He eats it. Got a guy eating blood on the Day of Atonement, and Israel pursues him pursues the man gathering wood, overwhelmingly chooses the rebellious son. And that's choosing death instead of life. By eating the blood, he's eating it. Make the connection to the communion service. Who drinks the blood in communion and why do we do it? Think about it. This guy, the goat man, he's eating the blood. Therefore, how's the atonement process going? How much atonement is happening over here? None. One guy eating the blood. No atonement. Over here, sprinkling the blood, atonement. Sprinkling the blood where? On the door, on the altar, on the mercy seat. So if you want to think of it this way, this isn't how it is. This is because God is omniscient. I have a crowd choosing death instead. You can imagine. I, I, I'm going to say it this way. Aaron is over here pretty much by himself. They're all over there. Maybe we got a few. But I think that's the case today. Right? We have billions and billions of people choosing pagan death. So think of it this way. It's not correct. I know it's not correct. But go with me. It's a humanistic approach. Think of this as a countermeasure. God has a countermeasure to instruct, 
to protect his nation, to, to protect his plan of salvation, God institutes the blue tassels. And Israel is to look upon the blue tassel, look upon the blue tassel to keep themselves from running over here to the whorehouse. So who is the blue tassel? Look upon the blue tassel, right? So clearly that's a picture of Christ, 1539 numbers. It, essentially, remember all the commandments that is not, uh, I'm sorry, remember all the commandments, God says, so as not to follow the whore into death, which we're all inclined, not just Israel, we too. So this is the establishment of the destinations. One way is led by the man who is killing the goat, not bringing it to the altar, who is in eating the blood instead of sprinkling the blood. The other priest, Aaron, sprinkles on the door of the tabernacle. John 10, 9, Christ makes it clear. He says it plainly, I am this door. I'm the door that sprinkle the blood on. Also the ark of Noah. If anyone enters by me, he shall be saved. I'm the door here. When God says, bring the sacrifice, bring it to the door. What's the door? The door of salvation. And Christ says this in that context. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. So I have Aaron and I have the thief. Over here I've got Israel being murdered by the tens of thousands. Over here I've got a few being saved. Christ is the door of the tabernacle. The blood is spilled upon him and the thief doesn't let that happen. What does the thief do to the blood to keep it from being sprinkled? He eats it. Now, that's interesting. Next week, we'll try to figure out why he does that. Could he have burned it? Could he have thrown it in the river? Dug a hole? No, he's got to eat it. Next week, we'll figure out why. Why?